Well, good morning, Merle. And it is a privilege to have you on one of the very first uh, Sword and Shovel podcasts. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure. Uh, I can't tell you how much um, your ministry has done for me. And so um, the least I can do is honor your request to talk about my uh, my alcoholism. Well, thank you. Thank you, Merle. It means a lot to me. And, and uh, uh, I am I was telling my wife, I said, I cannot. I'm so excited to spend some time with Merle to talk about the road that he's been on and the road that, that he's on and going to and uh, how much I've enjoyed time with you. I, I was having breakfast with uh, a gentleman yesterday and in, in the spirit of anonymity, uh, we're talking about his story. His wife has just uh, had her 46th birthday of sobriety. And I said, wow, I'd like to know more. And he said, maybe you maybe you know a guy named Merle. And I said, uh, as a matter of fact, I do. And uh, he said, well, tell him that he's played a significant role in my wife's uh, 46 years of, of recovery. And they, uh, they've they been a part of men's Bible study. He has been. And so he was sharing some of his story. And and I said, well, I get to be doing a podcast with Merle tomorrow, would be which which is now. So anyhow, more we'll talk more about that offline. But uh, certainly, that's something I'm looking forward to in my own recovery and my own journey, and uh, which maybe I'll save for another podcast. But so let's start with that. You you mentioned alcoholism. How did you find out that you were an alcoholic? Um. I mean, you know, I read the 20 questions long, long ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess, uh, you know, um, one of the sayings about people in recovery or people that are alcoholics is that they are egomaniacs with an inferiority complex. <laughs> and uh, uh, that fits me kind of perfectly. Um, and I don't know which played the bigger part. Uh, I was raised in a family and alcoholism is something that is very much a part of my family. My mother was a, uh, was an alcoholic and uh, my grandfather, her, her father was an alcoholic. So I guess I came by it. I earned it. uh, Mm. And I have no idea. uh, I had had an experience when I was, um, I used, my father got me a, a job working in the oil fields in Wilmington. I worked on a, a production rig. Really? Yeah. And um, one day after I got off work, the mechanic uh, took me over uh, to where I was going to meet my father to, to get home. And um, I was uh, not 16 yet. And so um, this man stopped at a liquor store along the way and got got a fifth. And then he proceeded to drink half that fifth and then follow it with a Coke uh, to follow it down. And he looked over at me and I guess my mouth was wide open. Uh, My father did not drink. And um, (laughs) at, at what he was doing, and he says, oh, I've been doing this for 40 years. Don't, oh, my gosh. Don't even worry about it. I said, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. And I mean, I was shocked. And I said, I'll never do that. And mm. lo and behold, uh, when I got to college and even before that, 
uh, I found myself uh, really wanting to uh, to feel at ease and comfort in crowds. Mm. And uh, there's a part in the book, in the doctor's opinion, the big book of alcoholics, where it talks about ease and comfort. Mm. And that's something I wanted. And once I had a couple of drinks in me, I felt that ease and comfort. Wow. So it was it it began as a as a coping mechanism. Yes. Essentially, like how to be calm and and in maybe comfortable in social environments. Yes. Um, and that was something that you picked up in, you know, before college, but it seemed like it became were you conscientious were you conscious of this as as a maybe you weren't using language for it, but were you aware that this was a go-to for you when you were when you were anxious. I was um, I was a resident assistant uh, at uh, UCSB, okay. and um, uh, I got fired uh, because I uh, I was uh, uh, apprehended by the ABC uh, for dry by purchasing alcohol underage, mm. uh, and so. Uh, Another resident assistant, a man that I happen to have a lot of respect for, asked me that same question, Chris, at that time. Mm. And I thought I had total control over it. Mm. And uh, I, I laughed that off, uh, only to then get in a, 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 an accident where I rolled my car. And, you know, I mean, it just kept on repeating itself back. But I was in deep denial. Hmm. And so now that you've you've moved out of college, you're you're established in the professional world, and you're an alcoholic. Um, I was an alcoholic. I didn't call myself that. Mm -hmm. I, I went. Um, I had a a period of of relief. Um, this was during the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to uh, uh, to enlist in the Navy. I went to officer candidate school, became an officer uh, uh, for, for various reasons. I was sent to supply corps school. And then uh, at supply corps school, I was told I would get to go to the, the destination of my choice. And so I studied hard, did well in the school, graduated in the top of the class and um they had at the same time had a lot of supply corps officers fail out of submarine school and so they decided to put the top students from supply corps school into submarine school and i ended up uh, on a nuclear submarine in oh my gosh uh, as the intelligence officer sonar officer and supply officer and uh that, you know, the fact that you were underwater for 60 days put, it kind of curtailed my my drinking quite a bit, obviously. And then, of course, during, uh, so that went on until I was 29 years old. I got out of the Navy and went back to business school and got my MBA at UCLA. And um, the, my drinking started emerging again at that time. And... Mm. Uh, I just suppressed that feeling in denial. I mean, m my brother drank more than I did. 
Uh, and he was a Phi Beta Kappa, Tau Beta Phi, all the stuff. And uh, so I figured I was okay. So it, it, I'm so intrigued that here you are underwater in 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 a very what I would consider anxious environment within a submarine during wartime and uh, not having access to alcohol. I, I guess now knowing my own story and, and my addiction tendencies and abilities to compartmentalize, that did not cure you that's not the right word i'm looking for but you 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 got sober i mean you weren't drinking or you weren't at least problem drinking but you weren't but then you picked it up again you picked it up again out uh out of grad school and and as you began your business career it came back to you you went back to it well i don't even know if it ever went away i mean uh you know there was always that uh i knew it was uh, it was actually 65 days of oh my gosh submerged at a time and wow. i knew at the end of the rainbow uh i would be back on shore and i would uh go back to live in a, a lifestyle that included uh, at that time it was uh more restricted to beer and wine and so uh, I I knew that was at the end of uh, the end of my time. So you always knew it was going to be back, and mm-hmm. it's kind of you know live through it. So you weren't saying goodbye to it; you were saying see you later. Yeah. Okay. So did you, with the relationship to drinking and social anxiety, and essentially using it to, to soothe yourself? Did that continue or had it progressed into now it's just every day you do it, whether whether you've got a meeting or a presentation, it was just it was just now becoming habitual. It was becoming habitual. Uh, and yet um, I felt that if I did not drink and I'm one of my vows was that I would not drink before six or six thirty at night. And so. I just always operated each day knowing that I would have uh, my little um, aha moment at mm. the end of the day. So did you tell yourself, I'm, I'm curious, I'm not a problem drinker because I can control when I drink. I don't, I don't drink during, during work. So I've, I'm not, a, I'm, I don't have a problem. I, I did that, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I knew that it, there was going to be that opportunity there. Um, I can remember one night um, I was um, at a um, at a seminar we had in Dallas uh, when I was I, uh, when I was working as a stockbroker. And um, I found out that the county where we were in was dry. And I can remember the feeling of being at this hotel and looking around uh, and find and figuring out what am I going to do? I am screwed. Mm-hmm. That was probably in my mid forties. Um, mm-hmm. I finally um, was, you know, the miracle happened in me at, uh, at age 49. And uh, so, I'll, uh, you know, a good part of my life was spent in, this just looking forward to the time each day when I would get
get my sigh and relief. Mm. You know, talking to uh, alcoholics and addicts and my, knowing my own uh, journey, that idea, that rhythm or ritual, almost like putting on your baseball socks and getting ready to play the game was part of the um was part of the addiction was the buildup and the anticipation and expectation and and then there was usually a letdown mm-hmm. followed by some sense of well the next one's going to be different or better or or we'll get back to having a a good experience with whatever our drug of choice is or was yeah that's right and you know there's always this hope of a bottom mm-hmm. and you know, I'm sure one one. Uh, if you look back at others, the signposts out there. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, uh, my being fired as a resident assistant at uh, UCSB was one of them. When I rolled my car was another one. But uh, I'm a slow learner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've 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 joked not you know, and, and I say joking not to make light of, but the. There's so many wonderful sayings and uh, that come out of the recovery community, particularly out of AA. And one of them uh, that I love so much is the blessed gift of desperation. Yes. Is that something that you, is that what you received at age 49? Was that uh, when you said, I need to stop this? Is that when you received the blessed gift? Yes. yes. Can you talk, can you talk about that a little bit, Merle? I would, uh, you know, I wish I'm a, uh... Hesitation. Uh, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, uh, I'll just be very candid about it. Uh, I had a nice Sunday. I. I was a. Ba- uh, I coached my son's little league baseball uh, team. I went to church. Uh, had the practice and got home and uh, and and then it. You know, around six o'clock, I started drinking, and um, it felt so good that night that I can I chose to continue it a little bit more, and uh, I woke up around um, uh, six thirty in the morning, and my wife is a teetotaler; uh, she does not drink at all, and somewhere around six six o'clock or whenever, I peed all over myself, all over her. Mm. Head. And, um, you know, at that point, I told her that if she would stay with me, and she was very, I mean, obviously very upset. I told her if she stayed with me, I would do something about it. And uh, that was my gift of a bottom. And I think the miracle of that gift was, if I look back, I had gone to um, to um, uh, a a rally. Uh, I forget what it was called. Uh, uh, it was a a, a group for uh, a meeting for men and something enders or uh, whatever it was. It was. Uh, uh, a group of men that got together the Sunday before that at, out of Angel Stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, at that meeting, I think it was run by the 
former coach of University of Colorado. Oh, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers, yes. Thank you. And so I'd gone to that. And at the end of it, uh, we had befriended uh, a group of men. We were sitting around and we, we held hands and prayed. And I prayed for my delivery from my disease. Wow. And it was one week later that that end to it came, not in the fashion that I had hoped for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, that was probably, uh, first of all, that's I, I owe so much to my wife for staying mm -hmm. with me. And uh, that was the bottom that I just, just set me on finding a way to end this. I had recognized before that I was an alcoholic. I'd gone to AA meetings and it had always been the case where, I mean, one of them, um, you know, and I don't want to, uh, uh, this, this, um, this person uh, was, uh, it was a man dressed as a, in a dress. Uh, and I went home and I said to myself on the way home from that AA meeting, when I get like that, I'll go back to AA again. Hmm. And, uh, it didn't uh, it didn't do it for me, and I'm sure that was another sign on the way. But at this point, I knew I had to find a solution to save my marriage. Um, my daughter was uh, 13 at the time. My oldest son was about. 15 or 16, and my youngest son was around uh, six or seven. Hmm. And so I went to that same meeting I've been to before, but it all sounded different to me that night. And I heard things that brought me hope. And uh, then I got lucky enough to have a meeting pointed out by who was going to be my sponsor. Um, and um, a week later, I went to that meeting. And after the meeting was over, I asked this man to walk me through the steps, hmm. my sponsor. And that was a gift from God. Yeah. And, and that was, that was the big, that was 40, that was at, you were 49 when this happened. Yes. Uh, that was, um, that was uh, May 16th of 1994. And you've been with the same sponsor since then? Very much, yes. Yeah. Uh, Merle, you know, you and I, our relationship began at uh, a church, and we are, I would say we're both evangelical Christians. We have a same theological framework. We spend Wednesday mornings together, typically, and Thursday mornings in Bible study. And some some people in our evangelical world would wonder how is a sponsor different than, say, a discipler or a mentor. How would you describe the unique role of a sponsor? Um, that's a great question. Um, I, I, it has to be someone that you, number one, really trust. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and that trust relationship grows. Uh, you face a point uh, as you work the steps. Uh, 
uh, going through, uh, and this this man that I'm referring to, my sponsor, is a Catholic, so he had a belief, but more importantly, he had, he gained my trust. And hmm. as uh, after you finish your step four, which is your inventory process, and you go through your resentments, you go through your fears, and then you go through your sex inventory. And at the end of that period of time, and it took me a good six or seven months to work through uh, my uh, my inventory in step four. And then you have a choice to uh, share all this, all your uh, writings with your sponsor. And that requires either a very old sponsor, which can't, who can't remember anything, <laughs> or someone you trust with all your soul. Mm. And uh, by that time with him, uh, he had walked through the steps and been very gentle about it, promising me only that he would work the process as hard as I did. Wow. As little as I did. And I had the confidence in him at that time to read him my fifth inventory from beginning to end. And at the end of the process, he asked me if I had left anything out. And um, uh, I answered no at the time. And then something came out that uh, later on that uh, I called him and shared that with him the next day. And I can say as a sponsor also, that process of listening to a fifth step is something I would have never done in my whole life before recovery. And it's now to me, one of the greatest honors that one can have to be able to listen to a man share his entire story. Hmm. Okay, well, so then that leads to you being a sponsor. So you, you've you had, uh, and I am and I know who your sponsor is and, and know of his reputation in the community and what a privilege it is for you to have this gentleman. And, and now, but now you have been a sponsor and I am privileged to know many of the people that you sponsor and and they feel likewise about you as you do about yours. Talk about that fifth step. I mean, that is when we tell, we turn, we, we tell someone our story. Um, what's that like? Um, well, there's a, you know, as one of the, I, I'm going to just go back a little further, Chris, and go back in to step one and two. Because mm -hmm. That really sets the stage for it. Right. And um, as a part of of uh, a step one, uh, you cover, first of all, how your your disease of alcoholism consists in three parts. The the body portion of it, how alcohol affects you and what it does to you. And in order to really talk about that in more detail, 
you have to go through and list some times when you uh, you uh, drank and drank to excess and mm -hmm. uh, talk about examples of what occurred when you did that. And then you go into the mental. And Chris, if I'm going into too much detail, please stop me. But oh no, this is this is really important, and I I think it's it, it, I think it's important. I'm I'm interested as myself in my own story, but I know that many of our evangelical brothers tend to minimize this the step work and the in the the depth of them and get hung up on a few things. So I I'm I'm with you. So. Uh, you go through the middle portion of it, and in the book it says um, over on uh, pay, it kind of paints a picture as you as you go look back at yourself mm -hmm. on page twenty three. It, um, it after it gets done talking about the body and the effect alcohol has on the body, it says therefore the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. Mm. So then you find out, you go in and look at experiences where you have had the experience of alcohol, you think you're an alcoholic, and then uh, you look at what it does to your mind mm. and how uh, through these experiences where you chose not to drink, but for some strange reason, you drank anyway. And my greatest example of that is uh, the time I got my family out around uh, uh, the trash can. We threw, we took all my bottles of alcohol and with my family there, I threw them in. And somehow later on that night, I found a reason why I wasn't an alcoholic and I went out and re uh, re-inventoried my uh my my refrigerator and closet with the booze that I drank at that time and found a reason to drink. Mm. And you know you kind of then from that point on you've held your family hostage. Mm -hmm. This secret this huge secret that you keep inside and at the same time i was running five six seven miles a day doing all this stuff i led a double life and, right uh it was it was it was it was uh when you looked at it I, some reason on friday afternoons at the office i would start looking at that and thinking this is something i got to address only to have it disappear as a concern later on that evening. Mm. And so in any way, uh, at this point of where you really reach a bottom and you find this is not something that's going to go away. Mm -hmm. It's going to be, you can't hide it anymore from yourself. It's there. Uh, you really have to answer the question. I was a Christian. And uh, to this day, I believe I was a Christian, but God did not give me the ease and comfort that I needed to not drink alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things you do in the, the, the 
third part of looking at step one is you look at faith and you look at your spiritual life and ask questions about that. And why wasn't my God strong enough to keep me from becoming an alcoholic? Mm. And so you, you go through and you examine what it's like. And in that part of the question, uh, you really have to, there's a part, there's a whole chapter devoted to we agnostics um, yeah. in the big book. And over on page 52, um, it has the bedevilments. It's one paragraph and it goes through something like this. We were having trouble with personal relationships. Yes, we couldn't control our emotional nature. Yes, on that one. Mm. You start asking yourself the question and then you find that you are left at the end of this with what was really your God. Hmm. And deep down inside, I I found that my God was me. Hmm. Deep down inside, I thought I had the power to control things. Wow. And, uh, uh, at the, we, I had been run by self-pity a big part of it self-pity i thought was uh was something good and uh it was run by selfishness and self-centeredness interesting and at that point i had to really examine was i strong enough to to make it work and the bedevilments proved me wrong on every single one of them mm. we were full of fear we were unhappy couldn't seem to be of real help to other people was not a basic solution to these bedevilments more important than anything else. Hmm. And so I started looking at my God and I found that deep down inside, I believe that Merle was at the center and he had to be replaced. He had to be fired. And so I went through the attributes of a God that I could trust in. And um, then I had to really say that God was nothing or he was everything. What was my choice to be? Hmm. And at that time in step two and three, as I went through the exercise of looking at who was my God, and then I, I chose to say that God is everything and I was going to trust in him. Mm. That trust has been a building process since that time. Wow. It is my God, the God that I believed in. And I was raised in, a, in an assembly of God church, mother mm -hmm. who drank every day, but yet, uh, attended that church and whatever reason I became an alcoholic and I had to turn the controls over to God. Mm. And this is a process that goes on. And I am certain today 
that my, the miracle of my life, the greatest thing that's ever happened to me is the discovery that I wasn't God and God and the uh, I had the ability to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. Hmm. And uh, this started out as a small seed and through time, it's grown to be a very large seed. I call it a miracle that I reached a bottom, but when I reached that bottom, it has to, things have to change or nothing else will change. Mm. And uh, I attribute, you know, pretty much how much do I say that I had to do with this and how much God has to do with this. Uh, everything, in my opinion, God was at all. And I just played a small part of following my steps and uh, being delivered. Wow. So the, 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 the question started, one of the questions that you had in your journey was, why can't my God be big enough to save me has turned into my God is more than big enough to save me. And I am a small part of this process. Uh, and I, I'm going go to add to that. I'm yeah. very thankful uh, for alcoholism. I would have never had the faith to follow this were it not for being an alcoholic. So I, I look at, <laughs> I hate to say this because you know, I I did a lot of things wrong in my drinking, but I'm grateful because my alcoholism led me to a true trust in God. Well, it, it reminds me of the promises that we don't regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. Yes. That yeah. this is, you know, uh, people ask me often, do I regret? my 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 choices and and actions nine ten years ago and i do but i don't you know i i don't regret where it's gotten me because the version of me that i am now today is much different and i think uh if i can say the word better which uh, that's very subjective but based on what those around me tell me the version i am today is is uh a better version for them to be around than I was 10 years ago. And for that same reason, I'm grateful that my addiction led me into a place where I was able to, uh, and I think step five I wanted to come back to is the admitting the exact nature of our wrongs. And, and I think that's an interesting phrase that we've come to a place where we can admit to God and another human being, the exact nature and when you said you had to fire Merle because Merle was basically your God, would you say, just for the sake of time, that that's pretty close to you know what you came to understand was the exact nature of my trouble wasn't drinking. Drinking was more or less a symptom of a, a larger issue, which was Merle was, was God. Mm -hmm. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. And as you listen to fifth step, fifth steps being read to you, and and you said the privilege, and I and I can I have some uh, understanding of that. But 
is that uh, when people come to that part of the fifth step and say, this is my, my real issue wasn't this, it is this. Is that the aha that they've been they've been waiting to find and you've been waiting for them to find? Um, it, you know, I think of answering it by what the big book says is probably the best way to do it. And um, though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless at least once at unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Mm. Liquor was but a symptom. Mm. Mm. Wow. Okay. Well, first, thank you for everything. Um, I'm, I remember when I came to understand, uh, in, in part, the difference between sobriety and recovery. And it was so simple and so profound. But what I learned from my sponsor was that sobriety is stopping a behavior and recovery was beginning a new one. And suddenly, for me at least, I understood what it meant to, to practice a negative sobriety, what it meant to be a dry drunk, what it meant to be the person that had stopped doing whatever they were doing, but but sure acted like they wished they were doing what they used to be doing. Um, can you talk about sobriety versus recovery? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I I think um, I, I can say that uh, God relieved me of my alcoholism and if God can do that for me, he is also able to rid me of my character defects, which came out as I did my, I, I got, I came to see those as I uh, looked at the, the rest of my inventory process and looked at my, at a lot of my resentments where at the end of the end of the day, after you work through, there was I I stood at fault for a lot of these people. Very few of my resentments were people who had genuinely harmed me. Mm -hmm. uh, they had stepped on my oversized egos. With <laughs> right. Well, I, I remember when when you and I did some work, I came to your house and we, and I was stumped on the fourth step. And uh, one of the takeaways that I got in, in our time was the reminder that the last column of the fourth step inventory was, where was I? And in being young in my work, I I didn't understand that question. I didn't understand. A lot of things didn't make sense right away. It took me years for the cobwebs to get clear on some things that were probably plain to everybody else. But but where was I? When, what do you mean, where was I? And what became clear to me was the question that was being asked throughout the program was, what was I responsible for? What did I contribute? And, uh, uh, you know, I, I remember that I thought that I was being bullied in high school and it was part of my resentments. And and uh, and then my sponsor said, 
and where was I? And I said, well, I, I, I couldn't find anything that I could have done differently. He said, well, could you have taken a different path to class and avoided the bully? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I almost threw my, my book at him, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I thought I'd finally found something that I wasn't responsible for and I couldn't have taken a different course of action, but you know, the, my journey into step work has been a constant look into the mirror, the, 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 the honesty mirror of, seeing myself not as I want to see myself but seeing myself as I am and and trusting the process to reveal the exact nature of my character defects which was not to be blamed on the symptom but in blame isn't even a good word to use necessarily but to identify the real culprit which was me my my fragile ego my self-pity I'd learned that self-pity had become a friend over my lifetime and it was a go-to. And if I didn't like my situation or circumstances, then I would play the self-pity card. And I usually got what I wanted, which was um, attention or rescuing, and usually from from a woman uh, who would who would come to my aid. And uh, it was a coping mechanism. It was a very very unhealthy coping mechanism that I learned from my mom. And uh, being a childhood asthmatic was uh, by my mom will make it right. She'll fix me. She'll take care of me. She'll uh, write a note to the to the to the teacher, and I'll get out of an I'll get out of another mess one more time. So, I found out that you know that the those that step work really exposed a lot of my excuses and my my rationale f- my for my choices. Mm-hmm. And you know th- these defects that we have in us. Uh, I was. Um, uh, we were sharing at, uh, it happened to be step seven, which is asking for the removal of these. And um, I think most of the crowd um, of the meeting I was at last evening, uh, which was led by my sponsor, um, is um, the, the, the recognition that a lot of these character defects, uh, some of them leave, some of them do vanish. Uh, others of them reappear if we stop doing the things we need to do to care for them. Mm. That that means uh, working with others and, mm-hmm. and adding value to them, which is an, another great gift that came from the program. Right. I would never listen to a fifth step from somebody in my old days why would i want to waste my time with that mm. guys were losers and i was a winner mm. and um, that um that change is another quiet gift that comes from god the desire to care for other people and to listen to them sharing their story and to to be able to ask questions to them some very penetrating questions that I would have never had the audacity to ask before. Mm. And it's a real gift that uh, I had nothing to do with again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I will agree with you, Chris, on one thing. Uh, I, I think uh, you offer more, in your current where you are right now than you ever were capable of offering before. 
and you have had an awakening that um i hate to say it was worth the journey mm. but this is where you are and this is what we have to do with the rest of our journey is to make sure we're doing what we perceive as god's will for us that's hard to hear <laughs> i'm sure it was hard to say but it uh i'm i'm not resisting that i uh, i I've had mutual friends of ours tell me that uh, one gentleman in particular, remember he said, when I asked you to pray for me 10, 12 years ago at your church, and um, you weren't really paying attention to me. You were busy looking behind me and looking around and, and, and maybe looking for someone who was more important to, to you than, than my wife and I were. And I, I just, you know, cringed and, you know, understood and, and made amends and, and we were we have a great relationship, this gentleman and I. But, um, you know, I I know that's true, and and I I I cringe, and that's the only way to describe when I hear that. That, but I, you know, it's it's really hard to say this to people that I'm closest to that it was worth it, and and that I and then again I know I wouldn't be where I am without what's happened in the process and the people and the. Notably, my wife, like yours, who have uh, has stayed with me and persevered when I made promises that I didn't keep, and um, yeah, it's. Uh, but I, I I tell myself and I tell the men I work with, there's no graduation in this program. Um, the idea that when you finish the twelfth step means that you get to leave the program and and you come back once a year to to celebrate your sobriety has not been my experience is that, um, you know, I'm in several meetings a week and, uh, I don't ever anticipate that will, my life will change from that. Uh, I think when I think that I've outgrown it or have, have need to move on is the day that I might be in danger of losing my sobriety. And, uh, that's not an option. I agree. I agree. And the value we add, I remember my daughter, uh, was working at the computer, I came home from a meeting one night and she said, dad, when are you going to graduate from this? <laughs> the answer to her was, you better hope never. Oh, that's right. You better hope never. Yeah. You know, I, I, there's a young man, he was on our call this morning for, uh, until he had to go to work, but he's been married a few weeks and, and his new wife said to, to him, um, I thought you were done with that call, uh, meaning our, our, uh, our weekly zoom call. And she's, and he said, no, I, I'm, and she said, well, is there something I need to know? Are, are you, you know, in danger? Am I, is our marriage in trouble? And he said, no. And she said, then why are you on that call? And he gave essentially in his own words, the same answer was, if I don't go on this call, I'll be in trouble. And, uh, you know, it, it's a longer conversation than we have time for, but it was essentially affirming, um, you know, I, I yeah, I'd rather do a lot of things with my one hour on Tuesday nights, but then be on a call with Chris and other gentlemen struggling with sex addiction. But I need to be on this call. And and the other part of it is the value that he brings to the call, not to mention the value that he receives. And and this is not just how it is in the body of Christ. We don't just simply participate from the receiving end. We we bring with us the our story we add value to the community we add value to the individual lives and in that group and uh uh you know I was thinking about hearing a first step you know when i 
was in my first meeting when someone gave their first step. And I thought, oh, this sounds like, uh, reminded me of a baptism or some something in church where someone would share their testimony. But this was an unfiltered testimony. This was, we're telling on ourselves the stories, the utter humiliation of the things that we had done um, in front of people we don't know. And and rather than people walking out of the door, shaking their heads and saying, like you said earlier, what a loser, we went up to that gentleman and hugged him and said, you're a winner, essentially. Wow, we're so proud of you. Way to go. That, that was hard, but that was so good. And I've, it, it's, I've never been in a meeting where a first step was, was shared, where there wasn't greater admiration and respect for a guy who told on himself. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it, uh, you can you can make jokes out of some of my behaviors, what I did before recovery. And you even learn to laugh at them yourself. And the one that comes to mind uh, <laughs> the most is uh, I was passed out on the floor on a Friday night and my wife and mother-in-law uh came home uh from a from a trip that had been on and my mother-in-law looked at me passed out on the floor there uh i've been watching wall street week and uh um my mother-in-law said my he's a sound sleeper kathy <laughs> oh gosh oh my gosh oh. but you know i mean it's funny but uh it's it's only funny in retrospect. Right. Only in re retrospect. Only the newcomers at meetings don't laugh. You can always tell a newcomer mm -hmm. because these crazy stories that people tell, they don't find funny because they're just too close to it. They're having those stories right now. Yeah. Yeah. You introduced me to the set aside prayer um, when we met uh, one of those times that we've met to discuss recovery when I was stumped on some of my step work. Can you talk about this, the set aside prayer for a moment? Uh, yes, I can. Um, it's kind of funny because uh, when I first, the set aside prayer goes, God, please help me to set aside everything that I think I know about myself, my disease, the 12 steps, and you, God, for an open mind and a new experience with myself, my disease, the 12 steps, and especially you, God. Hmm. And um, I thought when I first saw the set-aside prayer, which my sponsor had me join as a part of my second step, I thought it was sacrilegious because I had a belief in God. And... Uh, I was willing to set aside my belief in God for a new experience. And it was through that prayer that I was able to find out that the God that I had been so worried about uh, uh, setting aside was really myself in, mm. in its actuality. Wow. And that one, it helps us to see our disease, and it's part of the way that my disease can be looked at as 
the thing that led me to a strong belief in God is looking at the disease as part of the solution for the problem. Mm. And um, it doesn't make me grateful for those times. When my I don't know if my mother-in-law was just being facetious or whether she really did believe that I was just really tired. But um, there was a pretty good sign uh, of the fact that it wasn't just tired because I I had a, a can of beer poured out on the floor next to where I was laying. <laughs> so, but uh, maybe she believed that, I don't know. But, you know, it was my, uh, one of my goals in sobriety was making a living amends to her mm -hmm. uh, that would rectify that problem and leave her confident that her precious daughter was being well taken care of. Mm. Well, I can say that uh, since I've known you, um, Kathy strikes me as a woman who is secure and uh, uh, in 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 Christ and in her marriage, and uh, and so to to you and to uh, the Lord, uh, I acknowledge the work that's been done to to rebuild those walls. That's what Sword and Shovel is all about: is the rebuilding and. You've done the work, and and I, I know you're still doing the work. Um, you know, I, I I'm thinking about the end of uh, Jonah and the end of this of the prodigal son and the set aside prayer because both both of those the parable and the story of Jonah they end with a question, and I, and I think it's kind of left hanging for us the reader to answer the question. You know, Jonah is angry that God hasn't judged Nineveh for their sins, and he's got his arms folded and. He says, I'm angry enough to die. And God, and God ends the, the, the book with a question. Shouldn't I care about these people? And the same thing goes to the prodigal sons, the older brother, who is angry and won't come in and take part in the celebration. And uh, the father says, shouldn't, they, shouldn't we be happy? You know, and, and I think that's part of the set-aside prayer is, Lord, you know, you're, however I've seen you, I want to be available and open to how you really are. Because maybe I saw you as a killjoy or as angry or a critical father, a critical God. But I've come to discover that you're a merciful and compassionate and patient God. And uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't have come to know you uh, uh, except for my addiction, except for um, you've helped me to set aside my own ideas of right and wrong and, and I've come to understand you as you are. You know, it's an interesting story too, Chris. And um I can always remember um, my brother came out and my brother, uh, like I said, I couldn't be an alcoholic because he drank a lot more than I did. Right. He was an alcoholic. But uh, he, he came out to visit the family, my parents. And so uh, he did the same thing he usually did. He said, let's go take a walk down the liquor store. And we went down to the liquor store and my brother came, went in there and bought uh, a big bottle of club soda. And I figured, well, he's already got the booze at home. And I asked him, what gives? You didn't buy us any liquor. And he looked at me and he said, Merle, uh, I've been redeemed. Really? And, uh, that was the beginning of uh, a relationship with my brother that uh, I, I am so grateful that we had the opportunity to have. Hmm. And we became, we we talked every single day together 
at length. In fact, I, I can remember parking over in front of Kings Harbor Church for the morning meeting and talking on the phone with my brother at the beginning mm. of the day as he experienced life and I did too. And he was a very dedicated uh, member of AA. Well, I remember you going to be with him several times in Texas when he was ill. And um, in fact, one of my enduring memories uh, of you, Merle, and uh, memories, it sounds too much in the past, but your time spent with your family, uh, the passing of your sister, the passing of your brother, the time that you dedicated to being with them and um, the work that you put in relationally and, uh, you know, some of the hard work that was done. Uh, and then the love that you have for your family, all of your, your kids, your wife, and, uh, and so many men who have claimed you as named you as their sponsor. It's, um, uh, very, very inspiring. Let me let me ask you to, to end our, our call with one question to the listener who's wondering if they need help. Um, would you extend an invitation to the man who's struggling and uh, in, invite them to get help? Is that something you would be willing to do? I would be more than willing to do that. And, you know, the first thing I would say to them is that they have a disease like cancer, but it comes disguised in a lot of circles as a lack of willpower. Mm. And they've got to just uncover it for what it is. It's a disease. And it's a disease that God can cure. Mm. Amen. And if you want to be cured of that disease, then then go to a go to your go to the meeting of your choice of of your disease and uh walk in and and, and listen and um uh, and your home as we say in the promises we've made the great connection right well merle I, I can't tell you how grateful i am just for just for the time with you period let, let alone the fact that we get to record a podcast together put this on the sword and shovel site where our dedication is to rebuilding men and and people, but primarily men, and uh, that others will be helped by this conversation, particularly by you sharing much of your own story, much of your own first step and and step work, and without uh, without calling it that. So I'm really grateful, and I look forward to having you back in the future to talk more. I would be honored, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Merle. All right. God bless you. God bless.